I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Mira Sayal as part of my In Conversation series for W. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with a multi-award winning writer and performer whose work not only challenges, but also celebrates issues of race, gender, and just what we think is funny. Tonight, I'll be in conversation with Mira Sion. Thanks for doing this. Pleasure. I um, I was so glad when I found out that you could do it, and then I was actually slightly gutted when I realised how busy you'd been and how much I'd had to look at your career because you've <laughs> literally been working solid. Pretty solidly, yeah, yeah. I've been around a long time, but yeah. Well, it's not not that you've been around so much a long time; it's that you were almost active straight away because you went to Manchester University, didn't you, to do yeah. English and drama, yep. but then wrote One of Us when you were there, didn't you? And so you already, you know, you realised that to get in things, you'd have to write stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think I realised that quite early on, actually, because at university I was... Um, and I loved my university, you know. For me, it was a dream that I was doing the subject that none of my other Indian girlfriends were allowed to do. You know, they were all doing pharmacy or medicine, you know, the acceptable face of studies. And my parents, because they were very forward-looking and very loving, saw that I was so into being creative. They said, well, you know, do what you're passionate well, about. Come on, let's be honest. Were you just crap at maths? Yeah. I failed my maths exam every single year. So and it was getting up to O level. In those days it was O levels. And in those days, if you didn't have a maths O level, you couldn't go to university. Yeah. You weren't allowed. So in desperation, my mum and dad said, We're gonna get you a tutor. We're gonna get you a tutor to get you through the O level. I thought, well, great, get a tutor. At friend Mr. Sevilla, he's a maths graduate. Great, Mr. Sevilla. Didn't tell him Mr. Sevilla's an ice cream man. <laughs> So, no. Yeah, he was a maths teacher that was an ice cream man because he couldn't get a job teaching maths here. So I oh would know when he was coming because down the road I could hear... And still when I hear the teddy bears pissing me, I think, algebra, algebra. But you know what? There's a lot of people of my parents' generation like that that you know were highly qualified in India but couldn't get the equivalent job here. That's just the way it was. So we knew a lot of people that in India have been poets or artists or you know, college lecturers that here had to drive buses or work in factories because their their qualification wasn't seen as good enough. But was that the lack of a transferable qualification or a result of of racism, do you think? I think, well, a mixture of both. I mean, you know, my parents were bilingual. I mean, they were both college educated, perfectly, um, you know, absolutely bilingual, spoke three or four languages, in fact. So the language issue was never an issue for them. But yeah, it took them both a, a while to 
to find the jobs they felt they were right for. Yeah. There was a lot of knocking on doors, a lot of being told the job's already filled when it wasn't. But they knew that was part of the deal. Everybody that came over knew that was part of the deal. That was just the way it was. And, you know, whatever difficulties there were in Britain, they knew at heart it was a meritocracy, that they could come to Britain and they might have to work twice as hard, but they would at least have a better chance for their children than, than they would have had in India. And I often used to ask them, you know, in that sliding doors way, you go, Mom, what would yeah. happen if you had stayed in India? What would I be doing? Would I have married a man with a big moustache and have three children? What would be happening? And, Mum, and, and you know, do you regret it? And they've, they've never once said they regretted it. They said that, you know, England had been very good to them because because they had worked very hard and given a lot back to England. Yeah. You, you wrote Anita and Me, your, your first book, which has been termed as semi-autobiographical, which I, I never understand that. When people say, I've wrote a book, it's semi-autobiographical, but the lead <laughs> character is an Asian girl living in an ex-mining <laughs> town in the Midlands. You think, you know, we're, we're, Coincidence. Yeah. We're, what, how much of that was you across your life and how much of it was what was the story? Well, the setting is absolutely um, from my life. You know, I did grow up in this rural, white working class mining village in between Wolverhampton and Cannock. Mm. And, you know, we were the only Asians in the village. And it was such an extraordinary setting. It was such an unusual upbringing for an Asian kid because all the other Asian kids I knew were in the cities, you know. Yeah, why, why did they go there? Why did they settle there? It's my mum. My mum grew up in a village in India and it was depressing enough being in Britain with the cold, but actually being around concrete, she said, would drive her mad. She said, I have to be somewhere where I can see the sky and the trees and the fields. So when this miner's tithe cottage came up really cheap, she went, I want that one. My dad went, all right. So we ended up there, but she, God, God, what a gift for me. Because I was feral. I was a feral kid. Yeah. I would literally leave the house pulling on my clothes, leave the house after breakfast, and my mum would have to come and find me in the fields when it was getting dark. So I was just out there. Whereas all the other Indian girls I knew lived around other Indians, so they had the mafia of the aunties, you know, on every street yeah, calling, yeah. and what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I've seen you. I never had any of that. I mean, I do remember when my dad used to have these musical evenings and we'd have loads of Punjabi friends over. And, you know, in those days, you would put as many people as you could in one car. So you, you, we can get 15 people in a Datsun Sunny. <laughs> it is possible. You lie the children on the top ledge at the back and, and in the boot. You can do it. And um, I do remember people's faces when the first time my dad had a party and all these cars drew up and sort of 17 Indians came out <laughs> going, hello. You can see them thinking, bloody hell, they've all moved in. <laughs> Come on, you got in that car. So there were moments which were much more to do with not hostility but curiosity because yeah. people had never met anybody of another colour before and um, whenever people ask me like oh god was there loads of racism actually no there was more a kind of open curiosity because once they knew you were a good villager if you were a part of the village and you were a part of the community that was it they, they didn't really care beyond that but there was that initial what are you I don't know what, who, who you are yeah. tell us about yourself so I quite like that I do think that mostly people want to know if you're a good person that's all they care about yeah but as the only Indian family in the village, did you feel different, apart from culturally and so, did you feel at all? Because as the film develops and as the book develops and, and it's now a stage play, mm. there is a racist attack, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which oh, is brutal. Yeah. Oh, God, that was, that just was part of your childhood. That was going on all around us, you know. This was the West Midlands. The National Front were marching all over the place yeah. and, you know, packy bashing was a sport. I know it's really shocking to say that word now, but you, people used to use it all the time. So it's not like it wasn't there. It wasn't in our village. But, you know, you go beyond the village. Yeah, exactly. If I had to walk, if I missed the bus... 
the second bus that got me home from school and I had to walk past the council estate, that was hell. But yeah. that's why I got scrappy, because I sort of knew early on, I thought, right, I can either be a victim and I can look like a victim and they'll all have a go at me. Oh, I'll just front it out. So I fronted it out, so I became quite so punchy. So it toughened you off? Yeah, oh, massively. And did you on the front foot. Yeah. A bit tasty. I can be a bit yeah. tasty. Did you recognise early on, though, that it was born out of ignorance? Or did you think these people are just bad? Mostly it was ignorance, actually. And, you know, the thing about Anita in the book, who is, you know, the, the white girl that Mina, the little Indian girl, mm. worships and wants to be like and is her best friend and wants to be blonde and, you know, basically doesn't want to be Indian, wants to be this girl that she adores, who is, you know, the bad girl of the village. You feel intense compassion for Anita, as Mina does. Yeah. You know, even though she is, you know, slightly psychotic and, you know, towards the end of the book, you know, openly racist. But what Mina sees in her is, is someone that's damaged. It's actually someone who, because her own life is so bad, is finding a scapegoat. Yeah. And when Mina realises that, Anita has no more power over her. So for you, when you left home to go to university and to take your first steps in this brave new world, did your perception of your race in a balance with your art change? I think I, I, think I realised quite early on I'd have to create the kind of roles I wanted to do yeah. because sort of when I looked at television, you know, I was thinking about, you know, where can I work, what can I do? And, I, and literally it was like the woman in the corner shop selling the, the newspapers. It was, you know, the, the woman in a, in a Raj epic sort of waving at the Mount Battens. I mean, it was, you know, not, <laughs> not the part that parts that really stretched you and, and always very sort of stereotypical and limiting. And I thought, that's not me and that's not any of the women I know. And mm. it doesn't actually express anything of the, the two cultures I carry around, actually. So I sort of knew quite early on if I was going to have any longevity, I was going to have any kind of career, then those parts had to come from somewhere. And I never wanted to be a writer, but I thought actors don't have any power. I'm going to have to create these scripts to change the landscape so I can work. And also because I want to tell those stories because they're untold. Yeah. And, you know, the, I mean, the thing is with the needs of me, it's now part of the school curriculum, isn't it? I know. It's, it's, does that give you a sense of pride? Oh, my God, I can't tell you. I think it was one of the proudest moments of my career. I'm going to make a whole generation of children suffer and do an exam on my book. <laughs> <laughs> But then a couple of years later, you write your second novel. Yeah, which is, I, I love the title. Is the title come from your, your nan? <laughs> my mum. My your mum? Yeah, my, my second novel's called Life Isn't All Ha Ha He He. Exactly. Which is, um... I, see, it sounds so much better when you say it. <laughs> yeah. I think it sounds pretty good in Scouse, actually. Yeah, Life I... Isn't All Ha Ha He He. There you go. <laughs> Uh, you know where it's coming from. Um, yeah, it was it, it was a very typical Indian mum thing to say because Indian mums can be a bit doom-mongery, you know. Like, my, my favourite joke is, how many Indian mothers does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, don't worry about me, I'll sit in the dark. <laughs> Which is... Um, Sort of your average Indian mother, long-suffering, a little bit of a martyr. And also, like, danger is always around the corner. Don't laugh too loud or God will smite you. Yeah. So um, that's where the life isn't all ha-ha-hee-hee -hee would occasionally come out when, you know, you were having too much of a good time and you go, life isn't all ha-ha-hee-hee, go upstairs yeah. and tidy your room. But there will be these constant reminders. And I don't know if it's an immigrant thing, but it's like, yeah, life might be good now, but something bad might happen very soon. But what struck me about that, again, it, it was a successful novel, but it became a drama as well. It was adapted for television, and it, and it rated massively well, didn't it? Yeah, you know? yeah. 
Which you you can only get those kind of six, seven million ratings if white van drivers are watching it as well. Which again must be good because it, it's a world that's your world, really, isn't it? That yeah, men don't, yeah. You know, men don't enter. It was great proof, actually. It was proof that um, you know people don't get scared if there are too many brown faces in one place on the television. They will actually watch it if it's good. Oh, it's something that the commissioner seemed to worry about. Although I was I was in a IKEA, I think after the first episode had come out, and this bloke waved across the sofas at me and went, Did, were you in that thing last night? And I went, yeah, yeah, I was. Well, it was shite. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's critic, just yeah. by my sofa now. Um, so, you know, not everybody loved it, but um, it did get massive ratings. But you've been, I suppose, amongst the vanguard of people breaking down doors and breaking down barriers and, 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 and you know, you've presented all Asian faces in shows on numerous occasions. To me, it's like the Kumars. It's like so many things where you think, I'm just watching it because it's good telly. Yeah, yeah. I don't notice the... I can't say you don't notice it, but there's so many times where it gets judged for that rather than other things. It's I like, know. it's good and by the way. And by the way, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all of us want to get to the point where we don't even have to have this conversation anymore. Yeah. It's just because it's good and we're good. It's either funny or it's not funny. It makes you cry or it makes you love but we're there because it's good and that's all it is i mean it's just about being given the opportunity it's not like the talent isn't here and the stories oh my god the stories there are so many stories that we haven't told but there's there's a there's a movement now as you know within broadcasting to balance out the ethnicity on screen do you think that's good or do you think that's kind of almost confirming that unless you make it an action people yeah, are yeah. being judged on talent they're being judged on the skin color well you know if if someone had suggested it 25 years ago, I would say, mm, that feels a bit tokenistic. Mm. I think at this point, there are so many talented people out there that are really totally up to the job and just haven't had the opportunity. But I don't think it's tokenistic. I think there's a sort of bottleneck because of the lack of the imagination. Yeah. I know this seems a roundabout way of discussing it, but I honestly think that I don't think that America would have had Obama if they hadn't had a good 20 years of television where they absolutely cast in a multiracial way. And, you know, the first time somebody cast a black actor as a surgeon or a judge or a police chief or a lead in something, I'm sure there were lots of Americans going, that doesn't happen, that's, that's tokenistic. But, you know, American television kept on doing it because it's not just about what reality we think is around us, it's the reality we want to see. Mm. Television's aspirational as well as reflective. Yeah. And I honestly think the 20 years of normalising black people in positions of power made Obama possible. And if television hadn't done that, I'm not sure he that would have happened. And I know that's a big leap to make, but it's actually sometimes you have to drag television into the reality of the world it's ignoring, which is that we are a nation of all kinds of people doing all kinds of jobs. And therefore, why isn't it normal to see mm. that on television? Coming back to life isn't all ha-ha-hee-hee. <laughs> 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 um, your character, Sunita, self-harmed. Mm -hmm. So it's a story of really three middle-aged Asian women in their life. You did the documentary about self-harming, mm. which I, I thought was a really powerful documentary that was on BBC Two, and you said that you, you, you kind of experienced it because of the character that portrayed it. What made you want to do the documentary? Um, actually, it was a, when I was researching or writing Life Isn't All I Hear, I um, came across uh, a newspaper and there were two headlines side by side. Uh, it was a, a British Asian newspaper. On one side it said, Asian women top the UK graduate league. And I thought, well, that doesn't surprise me. You know, we're all supposed to be high achievers. So, you know, out of every ethnic group, Asian women were the 
the top graduates. And right next to it were Asian women top the Suicide and Self-Harm League. And it really pulled me up short that there were these two headlines side by side. And I thought, what is it in us that gives us a capacity to achieve so highly and to want to hurt ourselves and destroy ourselves as highly? And that really, for me, was symptomatic of the huge sort of struggles that were going on with uh, a lot of my generation of trying to balance these totally different cultural demands and how it was yeah, causing some women to achieve and some women to completely tear themselves apart. And then once I started researching self-harm, I suddenly realised there was a real hidden epidemic. And it's, it's still with us. It's very prevalent in, in, a, in a lot of young people with all the pressure that they're under now. This podcast is sponsored by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want the home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lady that you spoke to, I think she was called Susan, had, you know, a T-shirt on with severe... Scars. She was almost saying that was when I got divorced. That's when I thought I was going to lose the kids. And it was like it was like a map of disappointments that she had on her arm. And when you were when you were doing it, there was a point where they'd done a survey. They sent text messages and these to eight hundred kids, uh, random teenagers, to say, "Do you self harm?" And I, I thought it was it was shocking the levels that had said yes. What do you think, as a mother, just as a person, and just as somebody who's looked into it, what's going wrong? Gosh, that's such a big question, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't like to be a teenager now. I think they have so many more pressures than we had as kids growing up. Our lives were so much simpler. Social media plays a huge part in that, I think. Mm. You can never get away. There is no private space. You know, you can be bullied in your own bedroom. Whereas when I was a kid, if there was someone you were having a problem with at school, you left them at school. They didn't follow you home. You know, they couldn't even phone you at home. There was one phone in the hallway and you had to ask permission to use it and that was that. And you could make your mistakes in private. You didn't have to take selfies of every single thing you did and look beautiful in all of them and wonder who's doing what and have I been invited to this and how popular am I and how sexy can I look in this. 
You can't imagine the crap that is filling young people's heads. And social media, you know, is with us. The genie's out of the bottle, it can't go back. But honestly, the pressure that it puts vulnerable young kids who are trying to find out who they are under is, is immense. Now, I think being a teenager is hard enough without that. Yeah. So I think that's a major, major part of it. So we spoke about your, your novels and, and, and films, but I think what people will probably most know you for is your comedy. You broke through with Goodness Gracious Me, which... You know, there's a brilliant thing, I think. That I, in fact, I remember seeing it as it came on television that night. That it, probably the classic, the classic sketch from it, where you all go for an English. Yeah. They all go, get me some bland food. And <laughs> that was a good impression, that. And that was not racist. Not that was at a, all. That was a good impression. But you know what I mean? It's somewhere that. between Cardiff and Abergavenny, <laughs> I would say. Somewhere there. <laughs> with a bit of Chinese thrown yeah. in. But it wasn't like, get me bland food. It was, it was the whole getting the waiter's name wrong and all that. But it was a great way of seeing British culture Holding doing up the mirror. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I thought that was great. But from that, which broke down barriers in many respects, because as you say, it was a whole Asian cast, uh, the Kumars was another level. And I'll be honest with you, with the Kumars, that was kind of coming out just as I was starting to, to gig on the circus. So I missed a lot of it because the night that it went out. And because of doing this, I thought, I'll just watch a few episodes. And yeah. then I just kept on watching loads <laughs> of them. Yeah, they, they were a joy to do. Cropbooks, there was such a high level of improvisation. I mean, that for us made it really joyful. This great collision between a, a chat show and a sitcom. So, I mean, although we had rehearsed questions in our heads, genuinely, when our guests walked through the door, we didn't know what they were going to say and we didn't know how we were going to to answer them so you had to be completely there and it's just fantastic to play that but what was good with it as well is is you know, here's me doing a traditional chat show it took the chat show format and put it on yeah, its head isn't yeah. it so for those people who haven't seen it uh, the idea is that the chat show is actually taking place in the back of the house isn't yeah. it so the guests come to the kumar's house to an indian family home yeah. and get plied with fried snacks yeah, and get yeah. asked personal questions about why aren't they married and how much do you earn? Yeah, <laughs> so so you you played the you played the, the grandma. I did. And there's the mom and dad and Sanjeev was Sanjeev. So who decided who was playing who when you were putting it together and writing? Well, it's funny, I was actually talking about this yesterday with, with Sanjeev. The yeah. whole thing was his idea. Out of, you know, a meeting where he did take a girlfriend home, not me, to meet his parents. And um, his mum said, please treat him gently. He's not very good with rejection. <laughs> oh, that's nice, isn't it? Oh, marry me, surely. I know. I know. And then it, that made him think, what would happen if I brought a famous person home? Actually, they treat them exactly the same. And that's where the idea came about. But, um, but he had to really persuade me to play the granny. Because yeah. I just thought, I'm young and beautiful. I don't want to dress up as an old woman. <laughs> and then I, you know, and he described it to me. And I just thought, it's the best part. It is the best part. You know, it's like having a mask on, that old lady makeup. You are completely liberated. This is a woman who can say anything she likes and she doesn't care. And because she's a sweet old lady, she can get away with it. And, and, that, and I had a lot of fun. But he did have to persuade me. The other, the other thing that you've done is, is write novels, as we said before, but you took, you did two, I think, in a three-year space, the first two. <laughs> and, and, and then, yes. and then a long, why, why did long it take gap. so long to get, was it just waiting for inspiration, or? Are you were talking? 20 years 20 years, so. years, I know, 18 years. Um, I know, I sh my publishers are really, you know, annoyed, because I said, really, you know, if you want to be a proper careerist writer, you should bring a book out every two to three years, but... A, I got busy doing other things, you know, other acting jobs came up and other writing jobs, screenplay jobs 
came up. I wrote Bombay Dreams, the musical. There yeah. was other things that took up that creative time, but it was genuinely that I didn't, you know, I didn't find the idea that made me want to face that long, lonely road of sitting opposite a blank screen. Because <laughs> writing a novel is just you. It is, you know, there's no one there to help you. It's all you. Um, and that's the beauty of it. It can be a very pure journey, but it's also really, really lonely. And so you've got to really, the, you know, the story's got to be fighting to come out for you to want to sit down and do it. And I, there just wasn't one that made me want to do that for so many years. So. And, and the novel that you wrote, uh, House of Hidden Mothers, which I've literally finished <laughs> 10 minutes before we started this interview. <laughs> he does his research, this and man. I swear you should read it. I thought it, was, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was so powerful, so strong. And, and the stories that it brings out hit so many things. So, you know, a quick pricey of the story. It's about Sharma, who's, in, who's a middle-aged Asian woman in, in a relationship with a, a younger white Englishman, really. Yeah. But, he, but he, he, she's been more of a, a go-getter starting a business. He likes working with animals and farmyards, so being so. They're trying, they're trying for a baby, aren't they? Mm -hmm. and, and then she gets told that she can't conceive. And so they look for the other route of surrogacy. And it opens up this whole Pandora's box yeah. of uh, surrogacy in India. Where did you where did you get the stimulus for that? Honestly, it was a chance channel flicking thing one night, and I came across this really arresting scene of a whole row of Indian women sitting in a dormitory, all obviously poor and heavily pregnant. I thought, what's going on here? And I kept watching, and this documentary was about the surrogacy industry in India, which I didn't realise is at that at that time was the biggest in the world. I mean, worth, you know, billions. Yeah, two and a half billion pounds is the last yeah. estimate. Um, because it's the cheapest and it's unregulated. So India became the centre for the fertility tourist industry. Mm. And I just thought, well, that, that's what I want to write about. Because that, for me, was, you know, ticked all the boxes that I was interested in. It was, a, it was about, you know, ageing. It was about a woman facing up to the fact she was too old to have her own children, but had a new relationship, desperately wanted a child. I know many, many of my friends have been in that situation. And it was about the relationship between the East and the West and, you know, yeah. is surrogacy actually, as they would have you, as they would have you believe in the industry, it's a win-win situation because you're giving a life-changing amount of money to a poor woman who wouldn't earn it any other way and you get the gift of a child. Or is it pure colonial exploitation and depending on what side of that barrier you are you will have a completely different point of view and any any subject that's got such complexities in it is fantastic to write about yeah but what was interesting is that it it's not just it's not just the journey of the two protagonists going to try and get mm. the sort of good baby you, you look at Marla who's the who's the sort of good mum and her motivation for doing it and well, it becomes know, a kind of thriller doesn't it it, it becomes does. a thriller between the woman who's hired her and the surrogate and their, their power shifts as the baby gets bigger, Sharma gets smaller because suddenly the surrogate is more powerful than she is. She's the one who's holding all their dreams in her stomach. Yeah, and you know, and as I say, I'm so glad I finished it because <laughs> there's a twist at the end that I just did not see coming at all. Uh, and it's brilliant in, in that respect, but what, what there's, there's sections of the book where you talk about the infant, infanticide, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where, and again, it's, it's beautifully written where, you know, 
because of the dowry system and because of the, the onus that's placed on, on families if they have a daughter, yeah. that, that there are dead female babies oh, yeah. found in the countryside. And, and, and in fact, you, you, you do this whole thing that if you live in the city, you could get a scan, but if you live in the countryside, you're not going to know until the birth of the child whether you've got a boy or a girl. Yeah. And then you said, you know, that can be the day that you can be a birth giver and a murderer on the same, same day. day. I know, That's it's chilling, harsh. isn't it? Well, the, the it's race, a harsh reality, It though, is that. a harsh, but it's a... I mean, it's just the most ridiculous, evil system, Dowry. I don't get it. I don't know why you women have to pay, women's families have to pay for someone to take their daughter off their hands. I mean, surely they should be paying them. They're getting <laughs> the daughter. They're getting the jewel of the family, you know. And it's at the root of so much of this because for a poor traditional family, the minute you have a girl, you know you've got to fork out for their wedding and it's going to cost you. And so for a lot of families, the birth of a girl is... We well, can't afford well, it, it. it. We can't the, afford to have this child. But again, the book runs as fiction matching with, uh, with real life because you make a reference in the book to the case, I think it was Nish Sharma, who was the girl who was about to get married and then on the wedding... Oh, get this, Richie. This is so great. At the wedding, yeah. the, the, the groom's family then demanded more money and yeah. a bigger dowry. Yeah, on the and day. On the day, so it became a squabble and uh, her father was slapped in the face. So she took it on herself to phone the police yeah. and got all of a groom family arrested because it's illegal to demand a dowry, even though it's a law that no-one seems it's to It's been illegal for many, many years, but that does not stop a lot of people, you know, the less educated, more traditional people doing it. And she called them out on it. And so the police turned up, they were arrested, they were charged, and she became this huge heroine and actually got marriage proposals from all over the world, <laughs> which was brilliant, with all these men writing in going, you are a heroine, I will marry you. Because that's another thing that I didn't know as well, that, that, that families will advertise the girl available for marriage. Oh, well, that's part of the arranged marriage system, yeah. But, you know, oh, it's quite different now. I mean, it's all done online, love. It's all done online. <laughs> um, is, it like, is, is there like an Asian Tinder yeah, for arranged marriage? You joke, you joke. Tinder advertises itself in India for families. It's a mum and a daughter doing that together. Seriously. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a very different kind. It's not, do you want to shag? You know, it is, do you want to meet up for a marriage chat? It's not. Yeah, well, listen, God, marriage is hard enough anyway. If somebody can do <laughs> all the know. work and do the interviewing for you, I'd Do you know do what? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, basically it still comes down to chemistry, doesn't it? Mm. You know, they can be the best thing in the world on paper, but if you don't feel that, ooh, hello, when you see them, it's not going to work, is it? You've still got to have that. Yeah. Now... On every show, we ask a guest to bring bring a picture that's that's important to them. This is the picture that you brought. <laughs> Talk us through what you've picked. Oh, that. Now, can you tell my mum put a bowl on my head and cut my hair for that one? <laughs> that's gorgeous, isn't it? Just stand still. Um, this is me in the village. This is me in the village. So that fence is that was the fence that just ran along all the sort of little houses, and then behind that they were all sort of so like. A V-shape like that of miners, two up, two down, tithe cottages, and then alleys running all the way down that led into this sort of big dirt yard at the back where everybody parked their cars and hung their washing, and then there was a park. So that was my little world. And um, I love this picture because I just think I look so happy. 
you know, that is a happy kid. That is a kid that thinks life's a great big adventure. Um, and I love looking at that picture because I, I like being reminded of where I grew up and it brings back the smells and it brings back the sunshine and it brings back the endless summers. But also I want to remind myself of that, that curiosity and that joy because I think that's what you need to carry with you through your whole life to stay to stay in connected with life and to stay happy. Just remember what it's like to be a kid and think everything's in front of you. Yeah. What I like about it is, is as you say, there's a, there's a real joy in the face that it looks to me like that's the only time you stood still that day. <laughs> you were right. You know what I mean? It's like one of yeah. those kids' pictures where they've gone smile, you've gone, yeah, right, yeah. can I go? <laughs> it, to it totally is. You probably, you know, you can't see the bottom half. I was probably covered in mud. <laughs> had scabs on my knees and, you know, probably some scrumped blackberries in one hand. I mean, you know, we, that's all the stuff we did. But, um, yeah, it, it, it just brings back very sensual sort of memories of that time because I, I remember that fence I remember I remember that hedge I remember my favorite thing was that I don't know if you see that the little when you see leaves rolled up if you uncurl them you find little caterpillar eggs inside oh yeah yeah, yeah. all that kind of thing that I remember doing when I was a kid yeah so oh, it's nice it's nice to be remembered with the joy in it yeah it is it's a good thing it's a good thing and to still be playing out <laughs> yes, yes. Play, still be playing and make getting believe. paid for it Perminal. how great is it to get paid for dressing up and pretending to be somebody else I feel so lucky well listen I think we all feel lucky I think we'll all agree that's been a lovely conversation please put your hands together for Mir Sile This podcast was brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.